Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. Our broadcast today is entitled The Cross. One of the most prevalent and symbolic themes of the New Testament is that of the cross. This is for good reason, as the Lord gave his life upon a cross. Therefore, salvation was accomplished upon a cross. And so if Christianity had a theme or a logo, some sort of symbol to represent it as a worldview or a belief system, it would be that of a cross, a crucifix. This is why that's exactly what we find in encyclopedic and media references to Christianity, pictures of a cross when the faith is being discussed. Today on Words of Grace, we want to spend some time reflecting on the cross. First of all, how it was used by the apostles as an emblem of the suffering and the work of Christ as far as words go, but also what took place upon the cross. The reason that it was used as an emblem of his suffering is because of what happened on the cross. So what happened on the cross? And we'll consider that both in terms of Jesus' suffering and also the salvation that he provided through his suffering. And lastly, there's a lesson for each of us to consider when we look at the cross of Christ as Jesus commanded us, namely, to take up our own crosses and to follow him. First of all today, we'll consider the cross as an emblem of the suffering and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what exactly was a cross? I think we can all envision one in our mind. You might have a necklace on that is shaped like a cross. In my class ring from the previous millennia, when I was in high school and graduated and got a class ring, up under the jewel is a picture of a cross. You might have a cross hanging on the wall in your home. You drive down the road passing churches, and you might see crosses at the churches. You might see them at cemeteries. So what was a Roman cross, the piece of wood upon which Jesus died? A cross in ancient Rome was either a T-shaped or an X-shaped wooden structure upon which a condemned person was nailed, where he would hang until he died. And this was a very cruel and painful form of execution. You notice very carefully that I said, upon which a condemned person. Sometimes innocent people were put to death on crosses. Sometimes people were put to death on crosses for doing the right thing. The Lord Jesus never did anything wrong, and yet he was nailed to a cross. He was crucified. He was put to death upon a cross. Many times it was criminals who were put to death upon crosses. At the crucifixion of Jesus, there were two criminals crucified, one to one side of him and the other to the other side of him. Both of those condemned criminals, those thieves, reviled him at the beginning, and then God changes the heart of one of those. He quickens one of those, I believe, from death and sin to life in Christ, and that condemned thief, that dying thief, saw Christ for who he was and called out to him, and Jesus assures him, today you will be with me in paradise. He recognized that Jesus was innocent, and he defended Jesus after moments before reviling him. Many times, criminals would be crucified, but other people were crucified as well. Sometimes people who did nothing wrong, sometimes the falsely accused, sometimes those that stood up for the right cause. 
but it was a very common way for the Romans to put someone to death. As far as executing someone upon a cross, this was a very cruel and painful form of execution. When someone was crucified, they were nailed to the cross. Nails pierced their hands and their feet as they hanged there, suspended on that cross, they would begin to suffocate. And as they would suffocate, they would pull themselves up. As they would pull themselves up to be able to breathe, the muscles in their arms and their legs would begin to cramp, and the feeling of the nail piercing through their hands or their feet would hurt, it would burn, it would sting. There was immense pain in their hands and their feet because they were nailed to the cross. And then as they began to cramp, in pain, they would sink back down where they would begin to suffocate again. You'll notice that as Jesus was upon the cross, the Roman soldiers came to break the legs of those who were hanging there. And the reason they would break their legs is because they would no longer have the strength to push themselves up and they would suffocate. It was actually a way of putting them out of their misery and getting their death over with. But as you know, the Lord Jesus had already given up the ghost, and so when they come to him and they find him deceased, they're surprised. They pierce his side, and out flows blood and water. But the cross was a very painful way to execute. The Romans basically tortured people to death through crucifying them. I'm thankful that we live in a nation with a constitutional prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment, it's not lawful for us to crucify someone to death. It isn't lawful for us to burn someone to death. We do have the death penalty, and the Word of God speaks about the death penalty. There are many things that a person could have done, crimes they could have committed in the Old Testament, and for those crimes, God said you should execute people. If you're a murderer and murdered someone out of hatred, the Word of God in the Old Testament would have you to be executed for that. But I'm thankful to live in a place where we do this in a more humane way, because crucifying someone to death or burning them at the stake, that is so painful, it's so awful, that I'm just thankful that we have grown beyond that as a society. The crucifixion, to crucify someone, was so painful that we actually derive the English word excruciating from the Latin word for cross, which is crux. It's interesting to know that our very language has been shaped by this practice. If something hurts the absolute worst that it could hurt, and you have to endure that pain, the word that we often use is the word excruciating. And that, again, literally comes from the language, the wording for cross or crucifixion. So what one would have gone through upon a cross as they were nailed to a cross would be excruciating pain. There are other things in the world that are very, very painful. Burning someone at the stake was a very painful way to die, but it was over very quickly. You could hang upon a cross for hours and hours and hours, and the pain just gets worse and worse and worse. It was so bad that they would often give them wine or vinegar mingled with gall to drink, that gall was a sedative, it would numb the pain, it would make them feel less, it was some warped sense of mercy to those who were upon a cross in excruciating pain being crucified. 
But the cross was a very cruel way for a person to die. Prophetically, Jesus' suffering on the tree, on the cross, was written off in the Old Testament both as an event and as a curse. In Psalm 22, we read by way of prophecy through the psalmist David that they have pierced his hands and his feet. That's prophetic of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 16 of Psalm 22, Dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me, they part my garments upon them and cast lots upon my vesture. All of that happened upon the cross when Jesus was crucified. This psalm begins, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Which would be what Jesus would cry out upon the cross to his Father. So the crucifixion was certainly foretold of in the Old Testament prophetically. In Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 23, we read that he that is hanged is accursed of God, referring to being hanged upon a tree. That's also a prophetic reference of the fact that the Lord Jesus would be crucified and hanged on a tree and made a curse for us. He was cursed of God for us, for our sins. He died. He was cursed. Paul would use this very passage, Deuteronomy 21:23, in the book of Galatians chapter 3, when he says, As it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth upon a tree. And he spoke about the fact that Christ was made a curse for us, that we are saved because Jesus hung upon the tree and died for us. So, prophetically speaking, the crucifixion of Christ was something that was spoken of all the way back in the first five books of the Bible. Now, the cross was an important, all-encompassing word in Paul's writings when he referenced the suffering, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in a variety of contexts. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. If I come to you with wisdom of words, then what I preach to you is not going to have an effect upon your life. That doesn't mean that the work of Christ is null and voided. Certainly not. The work of Christ has power over even our failures, including our failure to preach or present the word correctly. However, the cross of Christ, when it's taught to you, is not going to have an effect in your life if I come to you with the wisdom of this world, some sort of vain philosophy. What does Paul use here in 1 Corinthians 1.17 to kind of encapsulate the gospel message? Well, the cross of Christ, the preaching of the cross of Christ. This is why in chapter 2 he says that when he came to them, his preaching was not with excellency of speech or wisdom, declaring the testimony of God to them. For, listen, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified, and him crucified. And so Paul will use this word cross to summarize and encapsulate all that Jesus did on the cross, both in terms of his suffering and his work. Galatians chapter 6, verses 12 and 14, you find a couple of references to the cross in this sort of all-encompassing way. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. You have persecution for the cross of Christ mentioned there. Verse 14 of this same chapter, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Paul would gladly suffer and glory for the cross and in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lastly, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 18, you find another reference to the cross in sort of an all-encompassing way. Many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, he's referring to unregenerates and false teachers, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. Our conversation is in heaven, from whence we also look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice what he says, there are people who are enemies of the cross of Christ. They are enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ, enemies of his work, enemies of everything he did, everything that he stands for, and they are so because their God is their own belly, their glory is in their shame, they mind earthly things, and their end is destruction. The last thing they ever experience is that of destruction. So we use this word cross to have reference when we talk about preaching the cross. We reference Everything that Jesus did, we reference his life, we reference his suffering, we reference his death, and we reference his work. Now, a little bit of a caveat. Even though this is the case, we refer to the cross as everything Jesus did, as the gospel, as the preaching of the gospel, as the work of Christ. There's so many different things. When we talk about Christ, we talk about the cross. And when we talk about the cross, we could summarize all that he did up under that umbrella term. Even though this is the case, we do not worship the cross itself. We worship the Lord who was nailed to the cross. It was Jesus who saved us on the cross, the cross itself just simply being a piece of wood. And at the same time, we do not need relics. We do not need idols of the cross. You will not be heard when you pray to God more if you bow before a stone or wooden or gold cross, as opposed to simply closing your eyes or looking up into heaven even and praying to God. When you bow your head in prayer, and I use that term bow your head symbolically, you might be laying in bed, you might be bowing literally, you might be smiting your breast and looking up to heaven. However it is that you're praying to God, if you're bowing your head in the posture of the heart in prayer to him, he will hear you. You don't need to kneel before a giant metal or stone cross as if that makes God hear you more so than he would otherwise. We don't need relics, and we don't need idols. Now, beyond that, and let me be very clear, if there were an authentic sliver of the cross, which would be impossible for anyone to prove, though some have made the claim that There are authentic slivers of wood that came from the cross of Christ. That piece of wood would just be a piece of wood that we should not, yea, never turn into an idol. And honestly, that's exactly what people would do with it. If there were legitimately a piece of the cross of Christ that human beings were able to take into their hand and hold, it would become an object of worship. Have you ever wondered why we don't have so many of the things that we could have had from the life of Jesus that existed in the life of Jesus? Jesus wore shoes. Jesus wore clothing. There was a crown of thorns dug into his head. There was a spear that pierced his side. There were nails that went through his hand. There was a cross. He was wrapped in linen. And I know that there are people that believe the Shroud of Turin was 
what Jesus was wrapped in, and I have no clue either way. It wouldn't affect my religion one way or the other, because we believe in Christ by faith that is given to us at regeneration. By faith, we understand the world's reframed by the Word of God. We know what we know by the faith that God has given us, and that faith that God has given us is Christ in us, the hope of glory. So we don't need the physical, tangible evidences of Jesus' life to believe in Him. God gives us faith. We hear the Word. God has given us His Word. We hear preaching. It touches a spot on the inside of us that nothing else can. And that's how all of this works. God didn't give us physical relics for us to have faith in. God gave us faith, which is Christ in us, the hope of glory. And as we hear the gospel preach and we read the word of God that has been preserved for us, we are built up in that faith. We believe we don't need the relics. We don't need idols. In fact, in the Old Testament, God says not to make graven images. Don't have idols. Don't have physical things. Because you're going to turn your worship from the invisible God to the idol, the emblem, the thing, the relic. And that's been a problem with worshipers of God from the very beginning of time. So it's probably best that we don't have a piece of that wood or the entire piece of wood upon which Jesus was crucified. But if we did, it would simply be any other piece of wood. There's nothing magical about the cross itself. What was important is what happened there, and namely, who was hanging upon the cross. So what took place on the cross? In light of what we've just said, why is this item so emblematic of everything we hold to be true regarding our salvation as Christians? So emblematic, so all-encompassing, so descriptive that we talk about the crucifixion or the gospel or the work of Christ, and we simply say the cross, the preaching of the cross, the work on the cross, enemies of the cross, suffering for the cross, glorying in the cross. Why is this? Well, because of what took place upon the cross, what occurred upon the cross. First of all, Jesus suffered for the sins of God's elect upon the cross of Calvary. Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, who is one with the Father, the second person of the Godhead, the Word that was made flesh, that dwelt among us, God the Father's eternal Son. God has existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for all of eternity, he is immutable. He does not change. God the Son died for us. He hanged upon the cross, and he died there. Jesus suffered for all of the sins of all of God's elect, those that he referred to in John 17 as those that the Father had given him. John 17, verse 1, These words spake Jesus, and lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour is come, glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. He gives us eternal life. Eternal life is to know God, and this was purchased for us upon the cross when Jesus gave up his life for all that the Father had given him. If you paid attention there, you find all three phases of salvation by all three persons of the Godhead. We were given to Christ by God the Father before the foundation of the world. That's the covenant phase of salvation. Christ died for those that the Father gave him. That is the redemptive phase of salvation. 
the work of Christ in salvation, and then they shall all know him. They'll all be given eternal life. How does this happen? Through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, because in the new birth, we know him. We know him. His laws are written upon our hearts, and every one of his elect shall know him from the least unto the greatest. We find this referenced in other places, such as John chapter 10 and John chapter 6. Jesus came to die for those the Father had given him, and when he died upon the cross, he saved them from their sins. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. This suffering of Jesus is referred to prophetically many times in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament as a bitter cup. What did Jesus pray in the Garden of Gethsemane? Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And Jesus is not trying to get out of the crucifixion, but he's simply saying, if there's no other way, and then he turns around and says, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He is fully submissive to the will of his Father. But what does he use to describe his suffering? A cup. The Bible is a very symbolic book. The cross has become a symbol to us, The cup was a symbol of God's wrath in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so, as the cup is symbolic of God's wrath in the Old Testament, many, many, many times, treading the winepress of the wrath of God, as it were, the cup there symbolizing God's wrath, the winepress symbolizing God's wrath. As Jesus speaks about drinking that cup, what he's saying is, I will take all the suffering that you have called upon me to suffer for the sins of your people. So Jesus thinks of the crucifixion and the suffering as a cup he must drink, and we look back to the cross, and the cross now has become a symbol of hope and victory to us because Jesus drank that cup. He satisfied God's wrath. Again, the Bible's a very symbolic book, and it has many things that are symbolic, many different types of symbols in the Word. Cup, wine press, cross, these are symbols that God has given us to understand. Now, regarding the suffering of Christ, Luke refers to this in Acts chapter 1 as his passion. And sometimes we read the word passion there and we think strong emotion. But the word passion in the KJV means suffering, to suffer. When we're compassionate people, that means that we suffer with them. We suffer with people when we are compassionate. Our heart goes out to them. We feel for them. We are moved by their suffering. And so compassionate means to suffer with someone. Passion means to suffer. Jesus' passion, his suffering, was so intense. He was hated his entire life. His entire life was one of suffering. He was homeless. He oftentimes had nothing to eat. He had nowhere to lay his head. He was scorned by his own family. He was rejected by his own people. His own community synagogue tried to drive him out and execute him when he began his personal ministry and preached unto them the word of God in truth from Isaiah, Jesus' life was one of suffering. He was arrested and tried three times. He was tried before the Sanhedrin, or the Sanhedrin, whichever pronunciation you want of that word. He was tried before Pilate. He was tried before Herod. And eventually, He was sentenced to death by Pilate as the Jews cry out, crucify him, crucify him, his blood be upon us and upon our children. As he was tried these three times, he was mocked, he was ridiculed, he was beaten, he would have a crown of thorns dug into his brow, he would be wrapped in a purple garment, a robe, he would have a reed put in his hand that looks like a scepter. They were mocking him because he was the king of the Jews. They 
buffeted him. They slapped him in the face. They punched him. They pulled the hair of his beard, according to Isaiah. We don't find a reference to that in the four Gospels, but we know from Isaiah's prophecies that they plucked the hair of his beard. And we know also that his visage was marred more than any man through Isaiah. Not only was he beaten, but he was scourged. They would whip his back with a multi-tasseled whip with shards of metal or bone or glass on the end, shards of rocks perhaps on the end, and it would dig down to the bone and slash through the skin. He was forced to carry this cross through an angry, hysterical mob. And hang on to that thought as we come to the close of our broadcast today. And then he was nailed to the tree. He was nailed to the cross. Upon the cross, he suffered, he bled, and he died. He was a bloody mess from everything that he experienced. And even after his death, he was pierced in the side and outflowed blood and water. And I'd add the fact that Jesus bled on the cross is one of the proofs of his humanity. In John chapter 19, John would reference this again in the book of 1 John chapter 5. But the fact that Jesus bled proved that he was a man. The fact that he was resurrected proved that he was God incarnate. He is verily God. He is verily man. And the fact that he bled, again, is very important because it showed what the Gnostics believed about Jesus early in church history was erroneous and heretical. Jesus was a man. Jesus was God. Also, what happened on the cross, because Jesus died upon the cross, the redemption of his people occurred there. He was born into this world to die, as we emphasized on last week's broadcast. And at his death, we were legally saved in the sight of Almighty God. God views us saved through the death of Christ if we be his people. As 1 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us. When did that happen? While he hung upon the cross who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now think on these beautiful words from John chapter 19. It is finished. What was finished? The work that he came into the world to do, as foretold by the angel in Matthew 121, he shall save his people from their sins. And as Jesus died upon the cross, he cries out with a loud voice, one single word in Greek, three words in English, simply communicating that it is is finished. Everything he was sent into the world to do is finished. What is a lesson for us that we can take from the crucifixion of Jesus and the cross? Well, what is the cross? It's a symbol of execution, and it's also a symbol of shame. Jesus told us to take up our own crosses and follow him as disciples. You find one occurrence of this in Matthew chapter 16, which we were in for several weeks in a row here on Words of Grace recently, then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The cross is a symbol of execution and a symbol of shame. So what do we learn about that? You and I, number one, are to execute, put to death, or mortify our sinful urges. We are to put the lusts of our flesh to death each and every day. At the same time, number two, we are to bear the shame of Christ in this world. This world hates us because they first hated our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we are to every day take up our crosses and follow him as he bore his cross through a hysterical mob. So we bear our crosses through this world, putting to death the lusts of our flesh 
and being willing, yea, joyfully suffering shame for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I would add to that that it is indeed a great honor to bear our crosses and live a life that in some small way parallels the work that he has done for us as he was upon the cross. Again, I'm Ben Winslet, thanking you for listening to Words of Grace today, inviting you to write and let me know that you've received today's broadcast, and also to tune in again next week at this time. Until then, may the Lord's richest blessings be yours, is my prayer. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. An online directory is available at marchtozion.com. Copies of this and other broadcasts are available for download on iTunes and on our website. And finally, Words of Grace is a listener-supported program. To contact us, address your correspondence to... Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741. Or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.